Welcome back to the Jojatorium. It's decaying with the boys. That's right, it's Matt, it's Adam, two comedic co-hosts that talk about what they love. Beers, combat sports, pop culture, horror movies, and whatever else we want. So subscribe on your favorite podcast platform to catch new episodes dropping every Sunday morning. Try to run away from me. So I hit him with my shoe again! How far are you gone? L.A. Not many people stop for a guy these days. Afraid of a stick-up, maybe. This buggy belongs to a guy named Haskell. That's not you, mister. Now, wait a minute. You're a cheap crook and you killed him. Never mind that stuff. Take a car. Huh? I do the You can keep it. I've got 51 left. <laughs> the Cult Worthy Classic, a cinema podcast dedicated to obscure films and cult classics made before 1970. Your host, Antonio Palacios, will guide you weekly through a sea of hidden gems and obscure films that are destined for rediscovery. And so, without further ado, let's start the show. Hello there and welcome to this show. My name is Antonio. This is the Cult Worthy Classic. This is going to be a fun episode today. I've got an old friend and fellow podcaster on the show, my friend John Madsen of the podcast Yours, Mine, and Theirs, another eclectic cinema podcast much like mine that really appreciates the older films, classic cinema, vintage cinema, you might say. John, how you doing? Welcome to the show. I'm I'm doing great, man. It's good to see you. It's been, I don't know, 15 years. Yeah, that sounds about <laughs> right, man. Like we see each other on Facebook and social yeah. media, which I feel that is just the new norm. It's like, mm-hmm. oh yeah, well I know what he's doing. I know what he's up to, even though we haven't really spoken face to face. Right, right. And here we are, each with cinema podcasts. That finally, after I'm doing mine a year now, and you've been doing yours for a few now. We finally get the crossover. Four years, I think. Yeah. yeah. So before we even get into the movie today, what is the origin? What was the genesis of your show? And what compels you to keep doing it and keeping it fresh? Because I've only been listening for maybe the last year, and mm-hmm. I I enjoy it because you, like my show, I feel your mission is to talk about films that not a lot of people have seen and yeah. films that you yourself and some of your fellow guests and co-hosts haven't seen. And that's the whole point of bringing these movies to the table, right? Right. Our goal is to cover every movie that's ever existed. <laughs> uh, we're doing three at a time. And we kind of have this weird thing because we do a little bit of both because the concept of the show is that the audience picks a genre that we have to cover, that we have to squeeze these three movies in together. And then... You know, I pick one and then maybe our guest picks one or maybe my co-host picks one. And then, you know, Facebook does a vote on one. So it's just kind of like we're kind of stuck with ones to talk about. So it could be I try. I personally try to, like, pick stuff that I'd never seen. It's like, okay, Mm -hmm. this is on my list. This is something I've never seen. Or this is, like, something I researched in the genre and it sounds really cool. A lot of times it sucks, but it's still, you know, a good conversation. But we wind up with a weird mix combination like so for like uh the episode where we talked about antagonists who win quote you know and that could be kind of subjective we wound up with rocky you know because apollo wins at the end empire strikes back of course Uh you know and then manos the hands of fate and it was just like (laughs) a weird you know a a weird combination then we're like you know could rocky punch the star destroyer whatever you know right so it's it's been a lot of fun, but the the origins of it have been okay. Maybe crazier than you think, because I don't think you know this, but 
my co-host and I, Roy, he actually used to go by as the name JR. He and I started a Star Trek podcast because he does not like Star Trek. And so he decided to watch Star Trek for the first time. So our podcast was called JR Watches Star Trek for the first time. We we started that like 15 years ago. And eventually <laughs> we got so sick, sick of watching Star Trek that we're like, hey, I'd rather, instead of talking about a bunch of Star Trek episodes, let's just talk about three movies and just find a reason to talk about the three movies. And so that's why it evolved into, into yours, mine, and theirs. The worst titled, the worst concept, <laughs> the most inaccessible, uh, because, you know, it, it's it's great. I think we have a lot of fun, uh, but we kind of we kind of ask the listeners like, okay, it's kind of a lot per episode because to fully enjoy it, you know, you can enjoy it without watching the movies, of course, like any movie podcast, of course. But you kind of do want to want like when I listen to a movie podcast, like especially like if I listen to your podcast, for example, you know, and I've li- of course I've listened to a bunch of your podcasts. I still have a big back catalog to get through, <laughs> but the ones. I listen to first are the ones where you talk about movies that I'm familiar with yeah. because it's, it's like joining in a conversation after you see a movie, for example. So, and then the second priority is like, okay, I'm going to listen to you convince me to watch a movie. Those right. are the second priority ones I listen to. Yeah. And I kind of learned that the hard way. Cause you know, like this, this podcast started off as just a blog and mm-hmm. reviews on letterboxd. And as I kind of gotten better at this, especially when I'm having guest episodes, I start giving people previews of the month. So these are the episodes that are coming. So if you want to have fun with it, then here are the movies to watch. This one, you and I have been talking about for a while. And -hmm. we're recording this in October. It'll come out in three weeks or so. Give the people a chance to listen to it. But this, uh, according to what you've told me before we started recording, was an introductory film to you and one that you were kind of hesitant about. I think that's fantastic because that is exactly how it came my way. So the film Mm -hmm. that we are going to deconstruct today is the film from 1958, Elvis Presley's King Creole. You know it's gone, 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 and I keep checking King Creole. You know it's gone, gone, gone. You're a pretty fancy performer, ain't you, kid? Now you know what I do for an encore. Now he crowns his meteoric rise to fame with a fiery burst of dramatic power as hard-loving, hard-hitting Danny Fisher, who sang his way up from the gutter. Are you an Elvis guy? No, not. I'm not an Elvis guy. You gave me a couple choices. I can't even remember what the other choice you gave me was, but I was like, I want to talk about the Elvis movie because I'm not an Elvis fan. I'm not that guy. Uh, I And I think you and I are part of this weird generation where because elvis died shortly before we came around yes you know and so the hardcore and we kind of grew up where elvis was this concept like uh you know you see the national Enquirer and supermarket stands and like the elvis sightings and the elvis lives and and i think you and i were kind of like who cares about this guy you know right by the time he was like socially relevant for us he was kind of a caricature of himself you know yeah and and it's kind of like our you know, our parents considered him the king of rock and roll, but, you know, we're kind of like, was he the king of rock and roll? Wasn't everybody else better? Uh, mm-hmm. He kind of, he kind of got awarded for something. He, 
like he was the show he was the white showman <laughs> at the time and and so i don't i think for our generation elvis didn't age very well himself and on our podcast we actually did cover an elvis movie we watched blue hawaii mm. and i hated it yeah and also <laughs> i went in i didn't like it i'm like who is this pretty boy he can't act he can't do anything uh and and it was just it was just pretty much like you know why would i watch in sync you know in a movie right. kind of thing it, it it just felt like that to me i didn't really appreciate blue hawaii but king creole you had me at okay it's a cult elvis movie takes place in louisiana i was a bit disappointed there wasn't enough voodoo in it yeah there i could honestly have been some voodoo. was expecting voodoo <laughs> <laughs> but let me okay i'll just say this up front better than blue hawaii for sure. Oh yeah, much better. I mean, I haven't seen Blue Hawaii, but the two move the two Elvis movies I have seen were Viva Las Vegas and Jailhouse Rock. Both films were suggested in my little film group because I have an Elvis fan in there, and that's where this one came from. But this one really fascinated me with my other classic movie nerds because I have a very extensive relationship with Michael Curtiz's catalog as a director. Mm. Yeah. I did not know he directed an Elvis film. Yeah. This is the, the guy that directed Casablanca yeah. and Flamingo Road and so many just great classic films from the silent era to the 60s. And here he is directing an Elvis Presley movie. So I went in blind. I didn't Google it. I didn't do any research on it. I just paid the four bucks on Amazon, watched it with a group of people, and proceeded to kind of have my mind blown a little bit by what... A, this film delivers, and B, the performance that Elvis delivers. Yeah. It, it's, I, I I think, uh, who uh, who was it? Walter Matthau? I, you know, yes. and this is, this is tri IMDb trivia, which, you know, my favorite thing in the world to do is watch a movie and read IMDb trivia <laughs> with a grain of salt, of course, because, you know, anybody can just write whatever. But, yeah, it's collected. <laughs> but I think Walter Matthau had had the quote he's like yeah elvis could have been he could have been something and i think you know michael curtis directing him i he's good he is good yeah um and and also i i and i was also thinking it's like wow this is such a james dean type of movie yeah, absolutely <laughs> and turns out it, this was a james dean movie it's like okay well james dean is dead let's go ahead and and get elvis in this situation i can't help but think how different it would have been because it's still so distinctly an Elvis movie. There are so many musical numbers in this. Like if James Dean were still in this, would he have sung a song every 10 minutes at the club? Been Would that have even been part of the story? Would that have been mm. where it's like James Dean is singing in a club? Or is it just more of a, a gangster story? Did they, let me ask you this. Did they yes. crowbar in rock performances in Louisiana because Elvis was starring in this. I mean, absolutely. I mean, and when yeah. James James Dean was attached, this was more than likely based on the source material, which was a noir novel by Harold Robbins called A Stone for Danny Fisher about a Jewish mm. boxer in the Bronx, not in the Creole, not in Louisiana. Oh, he was a boxer in the book. Okay. He was a boxer in the book. Looked, I should have Wikipedia the book. I wrote down the title, but I didn't look <laughs> down the details. Dang, okay. Yeah, so my guess is that that story was originally set with probably that, where it's this kid who's a boxer, his dad doesn't approve, 
so instead they move it to Louisiana and make him this kind of cabaret singer whom his dad doesn't approve. Now, one of the things that I really kind of dug about the way they made this for Elvis is, you know, Elvis always played either, like you said, the pretty boy or the XGI or in Jailhouse Rock, he is that kind of hoodlum. But in this film, he is a reluctant hoodlum. He is a hoodlum out of circumstance. His his mother died. His father was a wealthy pharmacist who kind of just fell into this depression and then his sister and he kind of became the heads of their household while they were catering to dad's depression, right? Mm-hmm. So because of this, he is constantly failing high school. Each year his dad buys him a cake and ice cream and hopes that he's going to graduate and he fails out <laughs> because he's working yeah. early and late at a nightclub. In a way, when I was watching this, it kind of reminded me of the early origin stories of Dirk Diggler and Boogie Nights. Where where he's kind of like working at a nightclub early and late. School hasn't really been important to him because he's trying to work and get away from his his household, which is not the most constructive place. Now, this one's a little bit different because he has a sister to care for and he loves. But I I was like, I wonder if PTA took Danny Fisher's character from King Creole, this teenager that works in a nightclub, and just uh, transformed it into Dirk Diggler in the nightclub and eventually becoming a porn star. <laughs> oh, that's no, that's good. I didn't, I didn't think of that at, at all. No, that's, that's really good. I want to, I want to step back on something you said. Yeah. Uh, he, he is, I I think it's great because he is the re- reluctant hoodlum. Um, the hoodlumness romance is taken out, right? Mm-hmm. He's not like a cool guy. It's not about the coolness of being like, you know, uh, not Rebel Without a Cause, you know. Uh, by the way, I've never seen Rebel Without a Cause. I need to. But one <laughs> thing I know about it is it's different than you think. It's not about some cool guy who's just acting cool, but it's a guy with, like, serious problems. I do know that much about it. But, like, for this one, same kind of deal, right? It's um, he's he's a good guy. He's the protagonist. He is decent. He wants to do what's right for his family. He wants to do all this stuff. But he's got some serious moral weaknesses too. Yes. Uh, that, that part, I was kind of shuddering just a little bit because uh, uh, what is the actor's name? Is it Dolores Hart? Is that the one who plays his girlfriend, Nellie? Is that her name? And then Carolyn Jones, who people would know as Morticia Adams, yes. plays Ronnie, who is Ronnie. Maxie Fields kind of, I'm not going to say girlfriend. He, she is a possession of Maxie Fields, Played by yes. Walter Matthau, who is kind of like the crime boss slash businessman of town that everyone kind of you know pays protection money to. Everyone kind of bows down to. He's like Don Fanucci in Godfather too. He's kind of like the Black Hand, but of New Orleans. Right, right, right. Elvis's two girlfriends in this movie. They are both so flawed. The relationships are both so flawed and so troubled and so bizarre. There's like not really you know as as an audience member i'm not going so much like oh i hope they wind up together forever and happy because you can tell there are issues with both of them you know carolyn um uh well i'll just i'll just call her ronnie i can remember i can remember the uh <laughs> the character name easier uh but she is just messed up and they have this weird um 
it's almost like this mother son relationship, mm-hmm. you know, uh, but, but a psychotic one. And, uh, you know, they go back and forth with like, you know, don't you want me, don't you want to get me out of this thing? Mm-hmm. And, you know, when they look at each other longingly, there is just such a weird kind of sadness and despair to whatever they could possibly have. And the other relationship, which I found more interesting, the uh, the Nelly relationship, just the nice, sweet girl that he brings home. Um, well, he well, no, that's the thing. He does not bring her home. Mm-hmm. He leads her to quote a party, but he really just you know slips the the guy at the hotel a few bucks, you know, so that he can get this innocent young girl alone in the hotel. And I I found that relationship so fascinating because I I expected just you know a slap like I'm not that kind of girl a storm off you know and she's good I thought the whole I'm a good person mm-hmm. but I'm willing to give in because I'm confused and I don't know who to look to in this life and is this good or is this bad I need you to tell me I need I need some guidance I think I don't know a lot of people might consider that just kind of. Uh, exploiting and just making her naive and stupid but i found her naiveness like so like a great sadness yes. to it rather than just like painting this picture of some girl who was used but she actually had depth to the sadness of the girl who was used and so it's it's funny that you know when you, when you watch movies like this you're like okay you know this girl is better than this girl this girl is that you know this and he should end up with this girl for this reason but both of them are tragic in opposite ways. Um, yes, I, I will say no. The um, I, I got the DVD from the library, and just for fun, I played the trailer for for this. And in the trailer, it was like you know, normally trailers back then I don't really care for, but I loved how the trailer guy said he had two women in his life: one who loved too much, and one who didn't know enough about love, or something like that. And I'm like, oh, that's a great summation of these of these two relationships. It really kind of is, and you know, like I'm. I'm so over the term gaslighting because it's just been used to mm-hmm. death. But there is this kind of vicious cycle where all characters are really out to get something from somebody. And whether it's like mm-hmm. an emotional response or just the feeling of love or being wanted, that's why I really appreciated how this film doesn't paint a pretty picture on Elvis Presley's character. And I, I think that, according to my research, he was actually really digging that idea where. You know, th- this is a guy that we all know now had his inner demons and had some really interesting emotional attachments to his mom, to younger girls. It, it, there really is some kind of parallel to this character and I think who he really was. Because mm. you can tell that Carolyn Jones' character of Ronnie is looking at this guy as her way out because he defends her early on. He's probably the only person that's defended her in years and there is this thing where it's he does have a powerful emotional draw to her but it doesn't really i think hit the lust factor yet she Mm -hmm. has the lust factor for him but because he feels that way the exact opposite is his attachment to nelly where he doesn't really have as much an emotional need at the beginning of the film for her as he has kind of this powerful lust because she is innocent having her in his life will actually make him feel like he has control over something. Because really, he has control over nothing. And he's always just on the border of not only collapsing his life, but his family's life too. I think there's really fascinating parallels at play in that. And when you start thinking about the other characters, everybody relies on someone for something. 
the father tries to get a job as a pharmacist at another drugstore. And this was a guy who owned a pharmacy for years, but now he is essentially a stock boy in his senior years. But he's relying on this job and this boss that treats him like garbage because he wants to be able to provide for the family so Danny can finish school. On the flip side, you have his sister who is... 20 years younger than this other club owner who's trying to get, the owner of the club of the King Creole, who's trying to get Danny to sing for him. And they form a relationship that, in my opinion, is rather unhealthy too. But just like these films of like the Great Depression or these down and out people of like the 40s and 50s, just having someone to be with, just having someone who can fill an emotional need it makes the empathy and the sympathy for these characters kind of overshadow how uncomfortable these relationships really are. I notice Mm -hmm. them. We notice them as viewers, but we're almost forgiving because it makes their lives just a little bit better than they were before. Right. Right. Yeah. No, I, I didn't consider that aspect. It's, it's it's kind of it's it's fun because the because the desperation of the characters is a little bit hidden by the fact that every ten minutes we have an Elvis number. Yes, that is which, true. <laughs> in, in okay, you know I really like the movie and actually you know what I like the Elvis numbers too. It, it kind of it weirdly reminds me of um, I saw my first Marx Brothers movie, um, you know uh, like a few years ago. I really really like Marx Brothers movies now, but mm-hmm. like one thing that's so strange about those is they have these great comedic sketch scenes and then they just do a thing where they just play a musical number. Right. Uh, which, you know, I think, you know, is, is kind of, you know, it's related to their time on vaudeville and everything. But I enjoyed this movie in much the same way. There's the dark, weird, gritty stuff of King Creole starring Elvis Presley. And to break up the dark, weird, gritty stuff, they have these Elvis musical numbers, which... If, if I didn't like this movie, that would be a huge critique of it. And I think it kind of is a critique, even though I like that the Elvis numbers are there. I, it is it is kind of overall silly to me yes. that, you know, there are all these really deep things. But it's like, OK, you know what? Elvis is going to sing in a drugstore and everyone's going to lean in and, <laughs> and and be happy, you know, while while crime is happening in the background. In the background. It, it's it, it makes so it's I'm so glad you told me that this is actually about a boxer. Right. I, I, I want to criticize the movie for kind of straddling the line tonally, not straddling the line, splitting the movie tonally. But at the same time, it's it's kind of fun. It's kind of fun that it does the noir thing and then it does the Elvis thing, uh, which makes me laugh to myself. I think it kind of works, but I see if it doesn't work. If you hate the movie for that reason, that's a really valid reason to hate the movie, I think. Well, it it also doesn't break my first law of musical numbers in a film. And that is, are you a musical or are you a film with musical numbers? It Mm. it never breaks that rule, which is awesome because it is set in these nightclubs where he is doing performances. You don't have the cast and crew all of a sudden break into choreography and take you out of the moment that the film's trying to build. These are set pieces. These are cabaret pieces. So I can give it a pass. And I give it another huge pass because these songs kind of fit with the tone of the environment. They fit with the King Creole, Louisiana, Bourbon Street vibe. We're not playing a Jailhouse Rock or a Be My Teddy Bear song 
yeah. in this environment. They all seem like this is something that you would hear in a nightclub. Now, it, the, the one part that does kind of, I have to go back to it because it's the very beginning of the film. Mm-hmm. The beginning of the film kind of starts with a musical number. So when I first saw this, it kind of almost broke my rule for me where you've got people in the street singing crayfish and gumbo. It almost reminded me of like the beginning of Beauty and the Beast of everyone trying to sell food in the streets. Oliver exactly yeah so it, it, it almost broke the rule and then it, it took a step back and then went incredibly dark so so let's just talk about the script and the darkness mm-hmm. and first of all there are some amazing lines in this film it's a very dark script it's a dark movie for Elvis and there aren't any wasted lines on characters I feel each character has got a powerful line, and I think the most powerful lines of dialogue belong to Ronnie as she keeps talking about like how miserable her life is. There's a scene where she wants to like kiss Danny and mm-hmm. he's pulling back and she's like, please just kiss me. All the wrong people want to. Blow me out for an evening to be mauled a little bit. When it comes to a sock in the eye, that pleasure is for Maxie Fields alone. Nice fellow. Maxie? Yeah. He wouldn't like you. You know why? Because I like you. Maxie hates everything I like. Maxie's my benefactor. He's a circus master. The cheese. The big cheese. Big and green and moldy. You've had too much to drink. You know it's 8 o'clock in the morning? I was supposed to be home by midnight. I forget whose. My convertible turns into a pumpkin. Maxie turns everything into a pumpkin. Danny, why don't you kiss me? All the wrong people try to. Look, we're almost at the school. Will you tell me where you live? And that's such a deep line for her character because you see how just miserable her life is, even though on the surface, she's being catered to by the most powerful man in town. Even though he treats her like a possession, there is that sacrifice that she has to make. And one of the other things about her character, too, is it almost reminded me of Kim Basinger's character in L.A. Confidential. You know, she's a real used woman. She's just at the beck and call of powerful and possessive and exploitive men But then, towards the end of the film, I know we're kind of jumping out of here narratively, she takes him to a place. It's like a a little beach house out by the docks. And it's her home away from home, where now she's no longer wearing black. She's wearing pastels, probably, lighter colors. She's living in this little beach house that's got lighter furniture and lighter colors. And even her makeup turns lighter. She's a different person 
in this environment. And it reminded me of the scene in L.A. Confidential where Kim Basinger takes Russell Crowe into the back room where she's got an Arizona pillow on her bed and everything's white instead of red and velvet. It really kind of just opened my eyes into the influences that I think other writers and filmmakers have taken from this film. Hmm. Nice. Okay. You're so good at pulling those pulling those influences. I think I saw I noticed a couple, but you, yours are so specific and so great. <laughs> I thank you for that. I just want to say that. Um, let me let me can I share one of my favorite lines from the other girl? Please do. Uh, I think I think it's I think it's interesting because I'm fascinated with, uh, you know, the Nelly girl. I yes. think you're fascinated with the Ronnie girl. Well, I'm darker. Um, I think we both know this. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but uh, the Nelly girl, her line that I specifically wrote down. It's it's the and it's the part where he tries to, you know, kind of um, the, that same scene I, I you know mentioned earlier where he gets her to the hotel and she's, you know, says, what is this? I don't know if I'm that kind of girl, but she's actually very sad about it. And uh, he says she says, I like you more than anybody I know. And I don't even know, know you. you. Great line. That's why right? I'm crying. <laughs> and I, I think I think there's a volume of biography in that line. Um, you know, it's like, you know, this is this is how unput together this put together woman is. Um, and so, yeah, that's my line. That's my line as, as far as, as women in the movie. Well, and it gets even deeper later because there's a scene where they're out on the boat in the lake. And she's kind of telling him that she's having regrets that she didn't go into the hotel room with him that night. You know, mm. she's like, it made me realize something. All my life, I have considered myself a nice girl. But now at this moment, I feel I'm not as nice as I thought I was. And I went with you. I don't understand it. I thought I was a nice girl. You are a nice girl, Nelly. I've been thinking about that night, and I'm sorry. Yeah, me too. I told you before. No, Danny, that's not what I'm sorry about. It's like everything just started with you. I guess both of us did something that day we'd never done before, Nellie. I never robbed a store. I guess it's the last time for everything, too. I, I didn't. Yeah. When we kind of go back to that Come whole idea of gaslighting, when they cut to Elvis's response to that line, he kind of like looks off to the left as if her telling him that makes him feel even worse about that situation. Where if he was, let's say a more sociopathical hoodlum that didn't have as much empathy or emotions for other people, he would have taken that as an opportunity to jump, to move. He's like, oh, okay, well, you are a bad girl. Let's do this. But instead, mm -hmm. you see this moment of hesitation where he is always in this constant battle with himself of should he be with this girl? Because also there's so many things going on. Let's talk about all the things he's got going on in his life. He's singing at this club. Yet he's also kind of on the side working with these hoodlums led by Vic Morrow who worked for Maxie Fields. He's done some shady stuff and he needs some money to get his dad out of work. So he conspires with them to rob the drugstore that his father is working for. And it's just a series of double cross after double cross that just makes the film that much more uncomfortable. And that's what I like about this movie. I like movies where just when you think it can't get any worse, oh, here we're going to make it worse. We're going to put some more pressure on our hero. 
we're going to put some more pressure on the characters that we've grown emotional attachments to. And now we're just fighting to figure out, are they going to get out of that pressure? Or is this movie going to end on a down note? Which it kind of does in many ways. It, it is it is a bit of a downer. It's a bit of a thinker. It, I like how it's it, going back to the relationships. I like the complexity ultimately with this little love triangle that's 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 happening. I like the complexity of hey, it's not just hey, this person's wrong for you, and so the movie's going to show them not working out. It's the complexity and the emotion of falling for the wrong person. Yes. Like the it brings that emotion into it. So. Hmm. Uh, can I say some things that are, I think are funny about the movie? Oh yes, please do. <laughs> uh, okay. I, I think I don't know. Maybe in this day and age, I think it's hilarious that Elvis is held back for like the third time. <laughs> I mean, at that point, just let him go, man. Like, why is the school so intent? Like, this is this school a prison? That's my question. Is the school just a straight up prison? They won't let him leave the school after three years of senior year. Um, I mean, that wouldn't happen today. I mean, I, I don't know. I, I'm not familiar today with anybody who has held back their senior year at all, right? I mean, <laughs> you've, heard of, point, just... you've heard of super seniors in college. Mm -hmm. And maybe when I was in high school in the 90s, we might have had like a super senior for a year. But yeah, I don't know. I, I think that's a very interesting note to make. And, you know, it, it, it kind of rubs you with, in an interesting way at the beginning because as he explains to the principal what his work life is and what his home life is, yes, there is some empathy of why he's not succeeding in school, but he could also just have a better attitude about things and not get the wrong people mad at him who are intent on holding him back. Like, really, his options are so many to get through this. I feel like he's kind of bottlenecking himself and setting himself up to fail but again that is another aspect of his character that's kind of explored and kind of feeds into the denouement of his his story at the end legrand the character legrand uh he owns the king creole he's sort of he's sort of the hero in a sense but again you know he's a little bit troubled because he's going after elvis's sister and she's not the kind of person you go after you know it's like i does he date everybody he goes is that why he went to dinner is that why he had elvis invite him over <laughs> for dinner you know because he he knew you know elvis had a hot sister that uh that would cook for him but he was a hero in a sense and here's my influence i think it's a wonderful life is an influence like this is this guy's george bailey he is the george bailey of bourbon street <laughs> Maxie owns everything and he's just he's saying to he's saying to the people he's like you gotta come here you gotta let you gotta let Elvis sing here don't you see Maxie he owns this club and he owns this club and he owns this street and he owns the police and he owns this we gotta stick together you know put your money you put your yeah. money in the savings and loan King Creole so I that's what I was thinking with uh with Legrand well and it also helps that of all the characters in the film apart from maybe Nellie and Mimi the sister he is, on the surface, the least menacing. You know, like yeah. when, when Elvis has to bounce out of work because his dad is in the hospital, Legrand is there before Elvis even gets there. You know, he's very pliant with his workers. His staff seems to like him. So I guess that that's just the representation that he is the complete polar opposite of Maxie Fields, which makes you want to have Danny's dad 
be more accepting of the opportunity that this guy is giving to him, right? Hmm. Yeah. Anyway, I, I mostly liked him, but as you point out, yeah, I mean, he is a slight bit of a predator, but I mean, every, everybody in the, every, every hero in this movie is just the lesser of, you know, someone more evil. Yeah. They're all extremely flawed, but there is, but there is a very creepy line delivery between him and Mimi when they're sitting out on the porch after dinner where he says, well, what do you think people would say if a 40-year-old man was dating this 20-year-old girl? And she Lana? says, I'll pick you up at nine. All right, it's a date. You know, I was wondering, is there anything in particular a man of 40 says to a girl of 20? Mm-hmm. Say you're 38. Yeah. <laughs> Danny. She says that. <laughs> And I was like, okay, well, now we know where her moral standing is. So I guess like the one shining light of this film is actually a little flawed as well. Like there's flaws to everybody in this in this story. She's like, make this a little less gross for me, please. <laughs> just say that you're 38. <laughs> yeah. Uh, okay. And also, I just I'm just gonna say, I I love how they crammed the Elvisness into this movie. Um, overall, I think. A lot of people died. A lot of people died in order to just figure out something as meaningless as who is going to headline at what club where. And that's <laughs> it. You know? <laughs> I don't know. Is this like an allegory for something? I don't know. Yeah, You're right. There yeah. are a lot of people that die in this movie or are on the verge of death. And, oh, I don't know. There, there maybe is some kind of like hero's journey to it. Maybe there is some kind of mythology to it where the darker characters meet darker ends. You know, Vic Morrow's character of Shark meets his end in the alleyway in a tussle, very reminiscent of Rebel Without a Cause, not to spoil the movie for you, but there are elements of that in there. And of course, there is the, you know, tragic uh, resolution to Ronnie's character. And of course, we haven't really even touched on one of the best parts of this movie and that's a very early performance by Walter Matthau as the heavy of the film, yeah. Maxie Fields. You know, I've seen Walter Matthau play villains before. He played more heroes or curmudgeony characters throughout his career, mostly with like the Neil Simon movies and later on in Grumpy Old Men. He did play a villain in Charade with uh, Audrey Hepburn and Cary Grant, and I thought he was great at that. But this is obvious. Honestly, the most sinister I've ever seen him. And what makes his sinister character come to life for me is the fact that he's actually rather charming. And I'm always more attracted to charming villains than I am psychopathic and obviously menacing villains. There's there's a fight scene in this movie. Walter Matthau kind of pulls a cheap shot involving a chair oh, it's on Elvis Presley. And it's and you're right, he's charming the whole time. We're kind of told he's the villain. I'm like, wow, is that Walter Matthau? He still looks like he's 60 years old, but like a different 60-year-old. You know? <laughs> <laughs> he's like, he's always been 60, but he's just kind of, he's morphed into a different 60-year-old over the years. I don't know, that's kind of what he looks like. But when he, when he attacks Elvis and he stops with the charm and he turns on the full on sinister mode i was scared i'm like and it's so good that i'm like okay walter matthau can do this i've never seen him do this like this but they didn't do it the whole movie they just did it kind of for that one scene and then it was that sinister 
was powerful yes. in that moment. I think they saved it all at once, and I was like, whoa, that really took me aback. It was pretty cool. Yeah, absolutely. And that that character is played as a true sociopath where there are really no genuine emotions. It is all a show. I'm going to be charming because charming is what gets me ahead. Charming is what gets me control. But I can also turn that off and be menacing when I need to be. And that is one of the more menacing moments of the film before that even happens, the amazing crashing a chair over Elvis's head. He explains as Elvis is coming to kind of like parlay with him that Carolyn Jones in her youth won a contest in Maine for best legs. <laughs> and at first it sounds very complimentary and then she she kind of laughs it off and he says, well, show him your legs. Not even yeah. like asking, not even joking, just turns in that miss and show your legs. And she gets embarrassed and Danny, you know, Elvis' character gets embarrassed and he's like, why are you so ashamed? You showed them to 30,000 people, show them your legs. Just that whole turn of emotional responses in one second just proves how menacing and bad this guy is. Yeah, that was really creepy the way he did that. You know, and, you know, it's, I mean, I, I, I've seen that before. I've seen that kind of justification, that, that manipulation. Um, but also, I was thinking during that scene, I'm like, I wouldn't mind attending a best legs in Maine competition. I'm just wondering what that would be like. It just seems like, okay, how, what, how does this work anyway? It might be, might be, might be kind of fun. And I know that's out of place. And I know that's a rotten misogynistic thing to say. I'm just, I just want to go to one best legs in Maine competition. I just want to see it. Maybe it was a crab leg competition. That makes more sense. Maybe we're, maybe that was a joke. (laughs) Maybe it's like, she makes the best crab legs, but I misunderstood the assignment on that one. Right. right. Walter Matthau misunderstood. she can't. She can't correct him. He's he's Maxie. She can't do that. So she's right. stuck. She's stuck with those million dollar legs. Oh goodness. You know. So going back to like Michael Curtiz and the the cinematic style of his. You know, there are moments pulled straight out of Casablanca in this film where he takes you these amazing tracking shots through the King Creole through Maxie Fields Club, you feel like you're part of the environment. And he did a great job with that in Casablanca. does a great job with it here. The overall style of filmmaking at first would seem out of place with so many musical numbers. I mean, the runtime is just a little over two hours. If you took all the musical numbers out, you'd probably have an 80-minute film, you know, nice and tight and and gets to the point. But it I, never... I, I kind of, th- I kind of think... We've talked about a lot of stuff, and it's fine that this movie is two hours, but I kind of think it's like this was more – it was a two-hour movie. I kind of felt it was a big two-hour movie, yeah. Yeah, it gets it gets heavy in the middle. There mm-hmm. are some pacing issues, and I think a lot of that has to do with the musical numbers because you will have mm-hmm. a musical number or two, like you said, back-to-back after every 10 minutes, and then you'll have an emotional connection between him and Nellie at the park or in front of the church that just doesn't have – the emotional importance to it because we just came out of kind of a jaunty musical number. Yeah. Yeah. And again, it kind of goes back to like, I, I, I can, I critically don't like the musical numbers. I think it kind of, it, it, it takes away from the darkness and the weirdness of this movie that I really liked, but also I like the musical numbers. And <laughs> actually going, going back to the musical numbers though, it, it's, it's great because in the other Elvis movie I've seen, and maybe you can agree with this, you know, with the Elvis movies you've seen, mm-hmm. I get the sense with other Elvis movies that when Elvis isn't singing, 
no one cares about the production. No one cares about mm. the story. No one cares about what's going on. It's just like, okay, let's just say a bunch of words to bide time until the next musical number. Mm-hmm. Uh, in this one, it's like the musical numbers, they are a nice distraction from what's going on. And maybe they don't fit in a way, but they do fit because when the musical numbers aren't on, it's actually a movie and not just an excuse to bide time between performances. Oh, and that's my biggest problem with most musicals, man, is that... Yeah all the exposition between musical numbers is really just kind of second hat. It is not the main focus of the story, especially when you have to make a musical cinematically. If you're making it for the stage, there always always something going on, and you are in the environment where you are expecting set changes and costume changes and lights on, lights off. It's all part of, a part of the experience of going to a musical in the theater. A musical on screen, you don't have those opportunities. You always have to keep the energy going, which means you're going to have a lot of filler and exposition and nonsense in between musicals. And that's why I'm not a fan of musicals, especially from that golden age of like 40s, 50s, 60s that were so long they had intermissions because of Mm -hmm. all that nonsense. So I do see some of that in here. The difference is the exposition is more exciting than the musical numbers. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's, uh, that's a, a good rule to go by. I mean, if you have, if you have a film with, you know, dual paths, it's like, Hey, this is a musical and it's a noir. Make sure both are good. Yes. How do you sell this Elvis movie to someone who's maybe not an Elvis fan? I, I guess, I guess I sell it in that this isn't an Elvis movie. This is a noir movie with an, uh, it's almost like it's an Elvis impersonator not being Elvis, you know, it, it's like, it's not the Elvis, you know, it's not what you think. And so, um, and it's a lot more, it's a lot more the movie than Elvis. Um, oh gosh, I should think what's a, uh, what's a good example. Um, someone who's a pop singer now, like I want to say like Justin Timberlake, it's like, Hey, I don't want to watch Alpha Dog because that's just a Justin Timberlake movie. Mm-hmm. It's like, no, that's not a Justin Timberlake movie. It's it's Alpha Dog. It's a completely different thing, and you can judge it for for different reasons. But he happens to deliver a p- performance in this, and this is Elvis acting. It's not Elvis in a series of music videos. That's yes. That's how I would say it anyway. Yeah, I agree with you, and I would say too that I mean there are a lot of fun people in other Elvis films. And Margaret and Viva Las Vegas. There was always at least one comedian or you know one vaudevillian to throw in there to kind of like get the old people to sit through the movie. But this one really pays attention to the supporting cast, casting great actors because these are good characters. These are well-written characters that weren't meant to just be throwaway exposition. And maybe that is the main benefit that this film gets from being a different project before it became an Elvis project. The meat was already there, and then Elvis and his numbers are the potatoes, right? Yeah, okay. That's No, that's a... No, that's a sweet analogy because, yeah, just thinking about, uh, you know, we, we went over all these other characters. We actually haven't spent a lot of time talking about the Elvis character. We did we did a little bit, but it's it's definitely the interactions between all the characters and they're not props they're people they're people so yeah 100 that's totally it yeah carolyn jones you know i had only known her from the adams family as morticia adams where she's very one note 
which is her role and she does great at it. You know, she's iconic in my opinion. So to see her and the range that she brings to this character and even the the hairstyle, which seems extremely modern to me by 1958 standards, it's almost borderline gothic. You know, I, yeah. I went to high school with goth girls with the same haircut. She brings that dark energy to this. You don't see a lot of characters like her in films of this time. And I it really makes me wonder if that character and that portrayal of her and the way she appears on screen was influential to the more kind of modern and darker, and I'm not going to say gothic, but let's say the mysterious characters of women that we saw in films after this. Uh, yeah, it's... Okay, sorry. Help me on the timeline here. Um, this movie was 1958? Correct. And Adam's Family, the TV show, was mid sixties. Yeah, mid-60s. Okay, yeah. Um, yeah, I totally... It, I mean, because it's kind of funny, because I know... Shoot, I should have studied it up on Adam's Family, because I know Adam's Family was a comic strip before it was ever a television show. Right. Um, and so she must have been, you know, she had the, like, the vampire look, or uh, what's the, um, you know, the, the Betty Page kind of look mm -hmm. in the comic strip, I'm assuming. But um, uh, what's her name? Carolyn Jones. You know, you've acted before, so I think you know this a little bit better than I do, but your personality brings to the character. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I, I have no doubt that, uh, you know, casting Adam's family, they're like, okay, there is a darkness and a weirdness yes. to this person yes. that carries over, that is something beyond what was established in in the comic strip. Yes. Uh, and so, um, yeah, we're, we're just going to change the hair, but you keep that gaze on your face because it's going to define a lot of weird goth girls for the yeah. next 50 years or so. Um, yeah, so I think there's definitely something there. And just like the everything old is new again too because she also brings a lot of, in my opinion, a lot of silent era mall type energy to a 1958 film. Uh, I would say Claudette Colbert with the hairstyle and, and the facial features Carolyn Jones has a face and and a structure that looks like it was meant for the silent screen. So now that you bring it to this film, it does bring that kind of darkness, that nostalgia. That is an interesting kind of double negative because you know we're nostalgic about this character from 1958. It may have already felt nostalgic for the people in 1958 from the silent era. Right. It it you know it's great because you said um she kind of has the modern goth look. Yeah. Um but you also I mean you you double back too yeah. because she also has the Claudine Colbert like kind of like the the you know the dark flapper look of you know right. the the darkness of the of the 20s you know at that time. And so she's like suspended from two different completely different eras than the one she's currently acting in. Uh and yeah, 100%. so yeah that I think that that provides kind of an uh, a weird everlasting quality that actually maybe offsets her from the, the time that this was produced. But that's what makes that character so appealing to me. Like that is my favorite character in the film. It's my favorite performance in the film. It is the the biggest emotional attachment for me out of all the characters that they throw at you who have all these things going on. Hers is the one that really gets me just emotionally gripped. And here, here's the other thing too. It's I, I talked about this on another 
podcast about another movie about happy endings and character resolutions. Where is it better f- for some characters? Is the happy ending to lose everything but still live and have a chance to start again? Or is it a happier ending for that character to die or meet a tragic end that they can't dig themselves out of because their lives were already bad anyway? It's kind of like this enigma of character development that I recognize in some films and appreciate. And her character in this film is definitely one of those. Because if Danny was her only way out, but he doesn't have those emotions for her, what other options does she have? What other options should she have than how her character's resolution comes to? She was trapped. And so like her story is a tragedy at the same time. She did have a pretty fabulous dock house that yeah. I felt like she could have visited at any time. Except Maxie knew exactly where it was. That's the problem. Yeah, no, that's true. <laughs> you know, and he did know and he did come and that was the tragedy. You're right. You're right. Uh, he, I was surprised that Maxie didn't bring like five thugs. He only brought the one thug that wasn't loyal to him. And, uh, he wanted to get it done himself. I guess he was just kind of impatient. That was his end too. Yeah. Uh, I don't know. I uh, I would have done things. Maxi is a wild card, and and uh, and Ronnie's they're they're too wild and weird, and I couldn't predict anything they did. And I guess that that kind of sustained their volatile relationship for so long. Well, so at the end of the day, for me, I can't imagine any other Elvis film being better or more entertaining than this one, at least for me. So I may see another Elvis film if someone suggests it or it pops up on a podcast I'll be a guest of, but I'm not going to go seek them out because for me, I can't see them getting any better than this. What about you? I I feel exactly the same way, although I am curious uh, because I assumed... Elvis movies were all bad. I just assume that because I'm I'm a jerk. I don't have a lot of time, <laughs> and I'd rather watch some you know some of the stuff I've I'm I've established for myself as as things I would like. I I should have done this, but I'm wondering uh, two things. First of all, and I don't know how true this is because according to IMDb trivia, Elvis has said this is his favorite of his movies, uh, which. I never trust IMDb trivia. Anybody could have just written that because <laughs> uh, I, I I feel like I've seen that little bit of trivia 40 million times on every movie. Some actor says it's their favorite one, but it's not. Um, but the other thing is, is this the highest critically and like audience score rated Elvis movie? I, I, I want to say it's like rated like a 6.9 or something on IMDb. And most of the other ones are like 6.1 but I didn't look at them all. I assume it's the highest rated, but I'm not sure. Critically, it has 100% on Rotten Tomatoes from the critics uh, with 23 critic reviews. So it is the highest rated of critics on on Rotten Tomatoes. And Mm -hmm. IMDb, it sits at a 6.9, but the average Metacritic across all the aggregators is 7.10 out of 10. I would say that. I I think that's a a solid number for this film because, like I said, it's not perfect. But it is, it is better than anything I ever expected an Elvis film to be. Right. Oh, well, this is great. This is great news. We we we've seen it. We we've don't have it. to watch any other Elvis movies. <laughs> no, nope, not unless it's an accident. <laughs> yeah. Uh, okay. I have one more question for you. Yes. Uh, I I I mean, this is kind of answered in your story about this movie. You know, you said it was suggested by you know someone, but you know, you have you know, the cult worthy classic podcast. Mm -hmm. 
And, you know, you've probably said this a million times on your podcast, but it's in ones that I haven't listened to yet. Uh, do you, how do you define this as a cult movie? Like, what is it about this movie? Because uh, I will tell you, when I Googled Elvis movie cult, the first movie that came up is a movie called Roust About, another Elvis movie. So why didn't we watch that movie? Is it just because this one's better? So my definition for cult-worthy is underseen, underrecognized, underappreciated, and needs more of an audience to find it. Now, I've heard of dozens of Elvis movies, and this is one that I actually hadn't heard of. And people whose opinion I respect brought it to me. You can say anything is a cult film these days, yeah. but is it really cult-worthy? I mean, anything can be to a certain audience, but the point of this podcast is to dissect the film that people consider a cult film and with guests and with people on Twitter and with people on my website that leave me comments. It's kind of my own little aggregator of, is this cult worthy? Enough people have recognized this film as something special that may have gotten lost in the wash of Viva Las Vegas or Elvis in Hawaii, whatever, that it completely passed me completely. And you know me, I know, I know a lot about movies. Yeah. So the fact that, A, it was a Michael Curtiz film that just completely got by me, an amazing performance by Walter Matthau, and an Elvis Presley film that doesn't feel like an Elvis film, that's good enough for me. I'm going to start spreading the word. That's that's a, that's a good argument. You know, For me, I think it's just the weird – it's just two comets flying in the night that collided. Yes. And, and the collision is this – beautiful explosion you got elvis movies coming this way and you got like michael curtis noir movies coming this way <laughs> and oh my gosh they hit each other and they made this movie they did it and i watched it and i was into the noir i was into uh you know i was i was into the maxi character threatening me and, and being scary and then i was tapping my feet to some like creole sing songs it, was, it works it's uh it was it was a fun trip so thank you i i should have trusted you i was worried <laughs> i should have trusted you well thank you for jumping on and and sharing the entertainment that we weren't expecting with, with me on my <laughs> show so speaking about shows uh yours mine and theirs what do you got coming up on future episodes oh it's fun i know you're avoiding halloween this year yep and good for you. That's a great <laughs> idea. We've probably all had too much Halloween in our lives. We haven't had enough Halloween on yours, mine, and theirs. We're doing a thing right now, and we do it every year. Uh, normally, the podcast is every two weeks, but we're doing it every week. We're doing three Halloween movies. And the topics this year are, and we've already recorded this one, and it's live. It's having a trouble with the feed. I don't know. You might have to go right to our, uh, you know, to the blog spot on this, but uh non-dracula vampire movies oh okay i like it we talked about vampire the 1932 movie mm -hmm. and lost boys of course. of course we talked about the lost boys and we talked about a girl walks home alone at night Great one. uh you know from just a few years ago uh you know a movie i really love um and lost boys it's kind of it's in my veins though you know so if it was me, I would have uh, kicked Lost Boys out because I'm over Lost Boys. Uh, let me guess. Let me guess. Near Dark. Yeah, you read my mind. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I'm Bill Paxton forever, man. <laughs> I, I, I regret it. I talked about it on the podcast because my my co-host nominated Lost Boys. You want to talk about Lost Boys, and I love Lost Boys. I should have nominated Near Dark instead of A Girl Walks Home Alone at Night because 
our next podcast that we're about to record is Girl Monsters. And uh. I picked Cat People. And I should have picked A Girl Walks Home Alone at Night because, you know, we're watching the old Val Luton Cat People. It's pretty cool. Mm-hmm. And then we're talking about The Faculty and the Jordan Peele movie Us from a couple of years ago. Yeah. So that's coming up. We're going to record soon. It should be live. Well, it'll be live by the time you hear this. You know, if, if you ever publish this one, it should be live by then. <laughs> and also what should be live is our discussion of Stephen King movies. We're talking uh, Carrie, Christine and The Shining. So that's our Halloween coming up. So if you're listening to your podcast right now, all of those should be available for you on, on the yours, mine and theirs. Uh, so uh, go ahead and subscribe to that. Do it. We, by the way, we have 10 listeners and if you listen and you talk to us, then we're probably going to solicit you to be on the show. <laughs> oh yeah. That's awesome. So uh, yeah, well, we need to get you on probably sometime next year just so you know. Fantastic. And every person and their podcast that come on my show, I put on my website under the Cult Worthy Partners page. So you can find links to John and his show, Yours, Mine, and Theirs, on thecultworthy.com. Man, it was a great conversation. Thanks for joining me. This this was so fun. Uh, I I hope you have the patience to have me back. I hope you have the patience for the spotty work internet that I had. <laughs> uh, but it's it's, you know, if nothing else been great talking man it's been too long since we talked movies it's been a blast it's been too long and next time we'll have you guys over in studio where it sounds nice and clear and we can have that one-on-one engagement everyone thank you so much for listening to the show my name is antonio this is the cult worthy classic please rate review subscribe and all those good podcast things i ask you to do and once again a reminder i do have merch on the cultworthy.com for both the cult worthy podcast and the cult worthy classic Thank you for listening, and we will see you next week.